We, last week, we left off with the rabbi's approach to the world. We spoke about how the rabbi describes his, his way of gaining knowledge. And we opposed that with other thinkers. We called it the rabbi's radical epistemology. How the rabbi accesses knowledge, how the rabbi thinks we can access knowledge, and how philosophy is lacking in that job. Philosophy doesn't get you ultimate meaning. The rabbi opened up in a very specific way, and I want to focus on that for a moment. The rabbi opened up with, I believe in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who led the children out of Egypt with signs and miracles, who fed them in the desert and gave them a land after having made them traverse the sea and the Jordan in a miraculous way, who sent Moses with his law, and subsequently, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. The king responds, what a petty way to open up. I want to hear about the cosmos. I want to hear about the God who, who, who created existence. I want to hear some sort of argument. And the king responds, the, the rabbi responds, the chave responds, that's not what I'm doing. I'm opening up with, and this is going to be key, with basically how God opened up to the Jewish people. How did God open up to the Jewish people? Who took you out of the land of Egypt. God introduces himself to us in that way. There's a context of God approaching us as a people. It's not just abstraction. This is the, this is the um, uh, Yehuda Levi moving away from the philosophical framework that seems so attractive when we opened up. The philosopher laid something down on the table and the response of the rabbi is, that's not how I'm going to open up. I'm opening up with a response to your earlier question. You had a dream and I'm responding to that dream. You asked how I should act. I'm responding to you how you can act in the only way we truly can. And that is with revelation. That is with a God coming to a people and saying, we have a history. I'm the God of Isaac, Jacob, of Abraham. I'm a God that you have a relationship with. There is a context to our partnership, a context to our relationship. And on, in, in that framework, let's carry on. Um, where should we go from? Ah, this is another important point to focus on. Rabbi Yehuda Halevi had a, 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 a debate historically how he was related to him. Have you heard of the Eben Ezra? Yeah. yeah. They were related. Exactly the different, apparently it's his daughter-in-law, his son-in-law married his daughter. And there's some cool stories about them both doing poetry together. But there's, a, I think it's the Eben Ezra in his commentary opens up with that his, was asked by Rabbi Yehuda Levi <coughs> the same question that the king asked the Chavet, which was, why did God, when he introduced himself to the Jewish people at Sinai, why didn't he open them up with, I'm the God who created everything? Why, why, why start off with God of fathers and Egypt? Why so petty? Why, why not broad? Why not grand? And this will give you an indicator of different people's worldviews affects how they see the Torah. Rabbi Yehuda Levi answers, cutting a long story short, is because that's the way of our mode of relating to Hashem. He's the one who took us out of the land. That, that, that's the only meaningful sense in which we have a relationship with God. I don't care if God created the world. Obviously, it's part of Jewish commitment and belief that he did, and it's going to be very important, but nobody was there that took you out of Egypt. You can verify that. 
Why can you verify that? Because when I spoke to you at Sinai, you can ask your parents and you can ask your parents' cousins and you can ask your cousin's parents' best friend who are all living in your community. That is verifiable. It moves it out of the realm of speculation into the realm of experience. That's always going to be key. Now, I always want to point out, I feel the need to always point this out. This is a historical argument. Part of all our epistemological frameworks are historical arguments. We believe in certain things. We live out things in our lives as, as if they are true because of historical arguments. That's what we do the whole time. Now, obviously, the, the, the synatic historical arguments we'll discuss in more depth later on, and we'll discuss how convincing we think it is. But Rabbi Huda Levi says, is saying, when we're being told how to live our lives out, the world of speculation cannot be a good foundation. Hence, God didn't, God didn't open up like that. The Eben Ezra, on the other hand, disagrees. He says, actually, no, I think God did open up like that. How so? I'll, I'll demonstrate it out. Anoichi Hashem I am the God in the broadest, most miraculous, most majestic sense of the word. That's appealing to the philosophers. This is the way the Eben Ezra understands the first opening commandment of the Ten Commandments. He splits it up. God introduces himself as that grand God, the God of the philosophers, the, the God that we could come to through philosophical speculation. And the second part of the Pasuk, who took you out of the land of Egypt, for the people who don't really get philosophy. They need the experience. They need the tradition. Almost like second best. That's a radically different approach. Rabbi Huda Alevi you know, says, no, no, your philosophy doesn't make sense. Yes, it's, it's going to be, uh, it, can be, it can be beautifully put over, but talking about ultimate meaning, it's still speculative. And just to draw us into our own experience today, a person who uses speculation to reach God will always be in a state of debate because the arguments aren't that good to give anybody certainty. When I say aren't that good, I think I'm not good at all to give anybody certainty. So why would the Ibn Ezra support them? So I'm, I'm, I'm using my understanding of philosophy today that the Ibn Ezra wasn't looking at it through that lens. I'm using, which I'm claiming, not that Rabbi Hudalevi is directly speaking through the mouth of a modern thinker, but the Rabbi Hudalevi's language works so much better in our day and age because we know there's no agreement in philosophy. There's no agreement in philosophers. They all have different worldviews and they present arguments to their worldviews and debate. That's, that's the nature of philosophy. Rabbi Yehuda Levi is saying, I'm bypassing that. And that's not just, it's better, it's the only way. He looks at this as giving you certainty. Now, we will question whether it will give us certainty and what he means by certainty, but it's a different sort of argument. One is saying, I have a historical argument to the truth of my faith. Why? Based off two reasons. One, they all experienced it, which means to have a nation of people experience something that be, and that be passed on through a tradition seems very difficult to falsify. Not that it can't be falsified. And when we go into the actual detail, we can, no pun intended here, debate it. But that, as far as Rabbi Yehuda Halevi goes, gives me certainty that I'm leeching off the people who actually experienced it. Yeah. So do you think we should find a middle ground between both approaches or it's one or the other? So I think Rabbi Huda Levi does find a middle ground between both those approaches. He feels he's beholden to reason. Why is he giving an argument? 
He hasn't done it properly now, but I'm bringing it up now. Why even bring an argument? Why not just say, I told you so? He's using philosophy. He's saying, well, we need a reason to know why the Torah is true. I need a reason. We're just going to, we're going to get to his first opening of the idea in a second. Meaning there's a balance that he's always doing between the calling and the argument of the calling. It's going to be brought out more when we open up. What we're going to do now is going to, we're going to, who wants to be the king and who wants to be the rabbi? Because definitely not really. Just be it, so you'll be the rabbi, you'll be the king. Go for it. Let's go from uh, Al-Khazar. <laughs> go uh, Al-Khazari. That which thou sayest now. Yeah, yeah, go for it. That which thou sayest now, O oh, Jew, seems to be more to the point than the beginning, and I should like to hear more. Surely the beginning of my speech was just the proof, and so evident that it requires no other argument. Have so? Allow me to make a few preliminary remarks, for I see the disregarding and depreciating my words. I need your diary remarks. Next time I, I, I will condense it, but I wanted to get to the first parable. And then from that point on, we'll work with the parables. But go for it. Yeah. If thou wert told that the king... Just to give a context what we're doing, we're about to say a story. And why a parable so powerful? It's the parables force us to almost immerse ourselves in the story and see our emotional reaction to a story. When you say a story, you can think of yourself as hearing the story. Like, and then see how you react to it, and then we'll, then we'll break it down. Okay. If thou wert told that the king of India was an excellent man commanding admiration and deserving, high, deserving his high reputation, one whose actions were reflected in the justice which rules his country and the virtuous ways of his subjects, would this bind thee to revere him? So what we have here is a story of a king of India. I always, there was this, there's, there's literature written about why they all chose India. Like, I think the Rambam also gives India, Rambam could be having a conversation with Halevi, but like, why India? I think India's like, Huh? They don't know it's like made up, but it, it, exactly, know. exactly. They didn't know Australia existed, but like India is like they've heard murmurings, and it's like the Indians, like not Indians, but like India, it's like that place far, far away, which we've heard stuff about. So, if you were told that the king of India was an excellent man, deserving of his high reputation, whose actions were reflected in the justice which rules his country in the various ways of his subjects, so we have this great king who you should be respecting there's something very special about this king but not only about this king people who come out from this king live out his justice and his goodness if such a king existed would you feel the need to as he puts it would that bind you to him would you feel obligated to be in relationship with him How could this bind me, or else I'm just, I'm, I'm not sure if the justice of the Indian people is natural and not dependent on the king or due to the king or both. But if his messenger came to thee, bring me presents, presents which thou knowest to be procurable in India and the royal power, accompanied by a letter in which it is distinctly stated from whom it comes and to which are added drugs. To cure thy diseases, to preserve thy health, poisons for thy enemies, and other means to fight and kill them without battle, would this make thee beholden to him? Certainly, for this would remove my former doubt that the Indians have a king. I could also I should also acknowledge that a proof of his power and dominion has reached me. How wouldst thou then if asked describe him? 
In terms about which I am quite clear, and to these I could add others, which were at first rather doubtful, but are no longer so. So what do we think about this parable? What do we think it's talking about? What are your thoughts? <laughs> okay, go for it. It's, it's good, it's good, yeah. Oh, it's, well, the ending thing is touched on, and it's talking about, like, um, you see, like, these people and how they're acting. So when it says the virtuous ways in the subject, so you're saying that there's a group of people that are so dedicated to, like, this this idea, this one man, then that's kind of proof for him existing. And then he's like, oh, how do I know that exists? Because... I see evidence for his existence. Things come out from this king that they're not, they, they cure diseases and they help me interact with the outside world. There's benefits to this king. And also drawing us back, the Rabbi Huda Levi's taking it out of the world of uh, God, Jesus, kingness to your individual responsibility. Are you bound to this king? Like, whoa, 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 what about me? Who's talking to me right now? We're talking about God of the cosmos. This draws it down. This is a complete shift in where we've been going before. We've been speaking about God's, God's universe, whatever, kings, whatever. Now we're uh, the, the Arabian Peninsula taken over by the Muslims and how powerful they were. The Christians and their trinity and the philosopher and his God. And suddenly the, kid, the rabbi's drawing a parable of a king. A king, which if he was truly, and I, I use this example of a, uh, if there was so someone you knew who embodied all the ideas that you hold to be of greatest worth, the greatest person, the best person, let's say you have a mentor, now put that on steroids, like really character, um, thought-throughness, all these sort of things that we value and we look up to, asked you to do them a favor, would you feel on some level obligated to listen? Yeah. But now let's add to that. That person had a relationship with you. They had helped you. They had sent you drugs. <laughs> so I said, you could just stop oh, there. No, no, no. no so, say, send you drugs, um, as he puts, to cure thy diseases. <laughs> <laughs> Metaphoricalize as you will. But, but also those who were trying to hurt you, they stood in the way and they stopped them. What were the diseases? Uh, 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 wait, I'm not sure exactly. <laughs> and... All these things he did to you, he draws it into the encounter, he draws it into the relationship, he draws the calling to the individual, responsibility, and then he asks, would you, would you be beholden to him? And the king's like, of course I would. I now have evidence that he exists. I now have evidence that he is a just king and a good king, and more than that, he cares about me. That, 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 the, the whole time throughout the Rabbi Yehuda Halevi, this is why people call it the, um, there was a friend named the, the rabbi who, who, who spoke about the whole kuzari as being the antecedent to Hasidus. What was the inspiration for Hasidus? Well, don't tell your teacher this, you won't like it. But what, was the, what, what did Hasidus do? The personal relationship with God? Not that it didn't exist before, but they, they moved that as being the primary God's love and God's closeness. And you just have to, the pintalayid and all these sort of language. Rabbi Huda Halevi has that idea of the Pintel Yid and that little Jewish neshama. That type of language has its roots here. God being in relationship with us, but at the, excuse me, but at the same time not sacrificing the non-physical, the non-physical nature of God. It doesn't go all the way down that God's now a dude. He's balancing constantly between God not being physical, but at the same time, God plays an active part in our lives. 
Yeah. So then, couldn't you say, um, can it, can it, couldn't you literally put like any example of of Jews being defeated by enemies as an like in this argument in this format? So it's a parable. It's not going to be perfectly translated over. I don't think we should but, let this. Yeah. yeah. Sorry. Yeah. No, but like what I mean is like is like um, because no no situation is so black and white. And in this list, it seems very black and white. So obviously I'd accept, so like certainly for someone who's so good at, you know, everything's so clear. Yeah. But it doesn't seem to be that the- that the, like, the parallel works good with Judaism. Yeah, because it's not so clear. For sure, absolutely, 100%. So how so, does that even translate? So we're now gonna listen to the rabbis paralleling of the parable. Right. And 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 whenever you give a whenever a parable, just to, to repeat the question, uh, is that the parable is giving things in a very stark way. Yeah, the of course I accept that when it's a parable. The question is when you try and fit Judaism into that parable, do I still find it that compelling? Yeah, for sure. And also depending on who we are as people, and also depending on how well we can articulate his arguments later on, we'll decide whether the the drugs and the weapons are really that explicit. Right. So we'll we'll definitely have to jump into that world. Would you? Would you? You've been, you've been anointed. For the king. No, it doesn't stand in opposition. It, it, it's the beginning. I, I, the reason why I made a joke with that some Hasidic person may not like it is because Rehud Ali is a work on philosophy. But at the same time, when the, the language of God being in relationship with us, not to the same extent, obviously, it doesn't say God's so far as the Debakus or his spiders. It's not quite like that. But there's a if you contrast this with other thinkers, there's something very intimate about this. It's the parable is that of a king that is in relationship with us. So let's 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 read the the yeah. Okay, I mean, like the way I look at like the third eye of the Jesus, which I guess I'm looking at like the Torah values, which like maybe the Torah like like to some people might like bring a lot of clarity or like like um like do a lot of good things. Like you see, like you see a Jewish person who really inspires and you, it, it's lived out and you see that and you really admire it, and that's why you like Torah. But then also kind of reminds me of the islam argument where if you just read the quran it's so beautiful and compelling so for sure for sure let's let, let, let's let's read his response and then we'll jump back into that question but absolutely you you could uh the the basis in which he kicked out the muslim we could kick out the rabbi here but let's let's see how it uh how it, how it plays itself through yeah well, yep. right. now this is the rabbi's response in this way i answered my first question and the same strain spoke Moses to Pharaoh when he told him, the God of the Hebrews sent me to thee. He's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. For Abraham was well known to the nations who also knew that the divine spirit was in contact with the patriarchs, cared for them, and performed miracles for them. He did not say, the God of the heaven and earth, nor my creator and thy sent me. In the same way, God commenced his speech to the assembled people of Israel. I am the God whom you worship, who has led you out of the land of Egypt, but he did not say, I am the creator of the world and your creator. Now in that same style, I spoke to thee, a prince of the Khazars, when thou didst ask me about my creed. I answered thee as was fitting and is fitting for the whole of Israel who knew these things. First from personal experience and afterwards through uninterrupted tradition, which is equal to the former. If this be so, then your belief is confined to yourself. So to repeat the, the, the to, to, to break down the point here, 
when the king first, when the rabbi first opened up his argument, on the first level, you look at that as being a bit simplistic. The rabbi's explanation now is, no, I'm, I'm, I'm panning myself in the same line that God opened up to the Jewish people and how Moses opened up to Pharaoh. There's a, which, which brings us to a, a, a more profound point on the nature of what we mean by God. When we say God, there's, it's in, in, first of all, the word God has got a lot of emotional baggage being in the Western world that we're in and the world in which it's led us here. The word God has a lot of baggage. But there's a certain baggage that we as Jews think God should have. The baggage we think God should have is this relationship with our forefathers. When we say God, Rabbi Yehud HaLevi is saying, we don't just mean creator. or even primarily mean creator. We mean the one that calls us. It's constantly going back to this idea of the encounter with God. And as he puts it there, I answered it as it is fitting for the whole of Jewish people, first by through personal experience, so the basis in which the Jewish people accepted that they had a relationship with God is because they experienced it. They experienced it in the land of Egypt where God took them out of the land of Egypt. They experienced it at Sinai. They experienced it with the giving of the manna in the desert. Those are the three things Rabbi Huda Levi focused on before. Going out of Egypt, preserving us in the desert and giving us the law. They experienced it. So they had a basis to trust in it. We have the tradition, which the way he phrases, which is equal to the former, which we can definitely discuss. But what that does is it parallels this point I mentioned to you earlier of balancing the world of emotion and the world of the intellect. The world of the intellect is giving the basis of it. The basis for doing something or the truth value you ascribe to something is you experience it, you can give an argument for it, you have a, uh, a tradition, whatever it may be, you have an argument. But the other side of it, which we'll call the emotional, is that what we mean by God has a relationship with us. He calls us. He took us out of Egypt. You have the idea of gratitude being developed there. He preserved us in the desert. And it's also the, uh, the uh, this more gets into the, the, the relevance of the actual argument. The, it, the, these sort of events, besides Hasinai, aren't like one-time events. The idea of the manna is a prolonged event that the Jews experienced in the desert. Egypt was a prolonged event where the Jewish people experienced slavery and then were taken out of slavery. So you have the balancing between these two sides of the intellect, of the, of the, of the human being, the calling, and then again, the argument. In which case, the Khuzari king asks a very good question at the end. So in which case, this is just, well, it's just about you. This isn't for everybody else. This isn't for the nations of the world. And the answer is, it's true. Judaism's argument isn't actually going to be that compelling to if you're someone if you're not Jewish. Which draws us back to our whole conversation about the Christians and the Muslims. When he dealt with the Christian and the Muslim, he didn't deal with them in a full sense. He, in a, he, he sort of more used them to move on to the Jew. And the answer he would give is because I'm not trying to convince people who aren't Jewish. I'm trying to lay the groundwork to speak to Jews. Not but how is anyone who isn't Jewish supposed to be believing the God of Abraham? Which is kind of important if you don't want them to commit idolatry, which is a no high law. So from his point of view, the Jewish calling isn't going to be relevant to anyone else. Why? It, meaning if we have to play out the king's question here, which is developed better, more full later on, if this is such a good argument, and it really is equal to the former, and I know the Jewish people have a tradition, why isn't everybody obligated? Think about that for the moment. If the argument is so good, 
why isn't the average non-Jew obligated by the force of your argument? Now, whether the argument's that good, we can, as I said, discuss. But from Yehuda Levi's presentation of it, he seems really convinced that it's a good argument. In which case, if something's true, then that transcends cultures. If there's a truth that I can see demonstrated before my eyes, then I'm obligated by that truth. The truth obligates me. If I understand an argument, one plus one equals two. You don't need to be convinced of that. The truth of that statement draws you. You believe it whether you like it or not. The king's asking the question, if you've got such a good argument here, which he seems to think he does, then why isn't everybody obligated by it? Because what is everybody else missing? Well, people don't see the truth. You don't see, you're not going to know it. Right, but that's, that's a good point. You, people aren't looking for truth necessarily, but let's pretend people are. Why? Doesn't it, let me put it this way. Let's put it in a very grounded sense. You're, you're a Jew. You do the whole Jewish thing. <laughs> Doesn't it worry you a bit that no one else really agrees with you? I mean, when I say no one else, I mean, like, most of the world think you're wrong. <laughs> so the kiss of Rabbi Yehuda, for sure, this is a very good answer. But Rabbi Yehuda Levy's response here is that part of my framework leaves space for other world views. The way that he answered the Christian, and this is why in, in Tel Aviv I called it the opening to... Uh, I called it the postmodern rejection of Christianity and Islam. The reason why I call it a postmodern rejection is he doesn't take it apart. He didn't take apart Christianity and Islam. He basically said, I wasn't brought up a Christian. So get out of my grill. And he said, I wasn't brought up a Muslim. So get out of my grill. So you think it's okay for people not to believe it? It's not like it's obligatory for everyone. That's what he's saying. Now, the, uh, the, the question is why? And this I sort of came to, and I heard someone quite a bit smarter than myself, say it more beautifully, uh, Rabbi Yitzchak Breitowitz asks this question, and in the mouth of the Rabbi Yehuda Levi, he answers it. And I think it's such a perfect answer because they only have one side of this split. And the way I, the way I put it, they, you either have truth or relevance. A thing can be true, but it is irrelevant to me. It doesn't call me. God spoke to the Jewish people. Historical event. I'm really sure that happened. And Tyra, no, I don't, I don't care. Relevance, God called to your ancestors. God took your ancestors out of Egypt. God called you on a purpose and on a mission. That's the calling side of things. That makes the truth relevant. If you just have one without the other, you just have an inspiring story without any way of grounding it, then you just have relevance and you have no truth. If you just have truth, but you have no relevance. You have how many grains of sand there are on the Bugashoff beach. I don't care. God spoke to a bunch of people. If you tell me, you, if you tell me God spoke to a bunch of random people in sub-Saharan Africa, okay, well, what's, what's that to do to me? I want to see the relevance. <laughs> this is once again, drawing it into both sides of the human personality, the emotional and the intellectual. The goal is not to be obsessed with one over the other. The goal is to try and marry them both together. But Yehuda Levi not only marries them both together, but he lives it out in like a halachic ruling. If you only have one and you weren't taken out of Egypt, then of course you're not. Go back to the king. How did he phrase it? Would this bind thee to revere him? Binding you to revere him? He asked the king, says, no. And guess what? He's right. All this might be true. First of all, I have no way of knowing it's true. And also, what's it to me? And he says, well, 
He sent you cool things. He looked after you. He healed you. He protected you. You know it's, you've got reason to think that not only is there an intimate relationship between you and a king, there's also stuff that I can see. There's, there's, here's the gold. Here's the, here's the magical weapons. So I have the truth and I have the relevance together. Thereby, I have a worldview I can construct. That's what Judaism is, is in, in this construct. Yeah. I'm oh, sorry, going back to your point about it's only obligatory for the Jews. I mean, it doesn't, uh, like the Velvet Sasser said about the Novel Glass, because they're still there. And... So, so, I, so that's a good question. Uh, it's a good question. I'm not sure how best to deal with that. I can speculate because the seven Noahite laws are a, um, you could claim they are basically seven fundamentals of moral thinking in general. You don't, they're not, they're not major chidushim there. What do we mean by idolatry can be discussed. What does it mean by cursing, whatever? Those can be discussed. I think they can be fairly easily pinned down in, uh, um, not naturalistic terms, but in terms that you don't necessarily need a book to tell you that that's not how you should be living your life out. But yeah, it's a good question. Why, what about the seven archetypes? But, but you could also, you could claim that that part of the Genesis story is talking about the whole of humanity, in which case maybe they are, the Torah itself would bind them. If they would go through the story, recognize the weight of its arguments and the fact that that was appreciated, uh, spoke about a covenant between God and the whole of humanity, maybe you could claim that they would be bound by that. But that's not what the, the, the Khazari's king's asking here. Does that make sense? It's a, it's a, it's a, true, it's a good question. Um, Anyway, so that's the that's the presentation by the king to the king about the opening of the Jew. Where he's going to go next is more, and obviously there's areas we haven't been able to discuss. But the next stage that he's going to go to is going to be start speaking about the uniqueness of the Jewish people, because the king's saying, "What? Just you guys?" And he's going to be like, "Yeah, just our guys." Any thoughts? Any questions? Um, yeah. So speaking about the seven Noahid laws, I guess also it's kind of like the way. With the 630 commandments, no one's expected to do all of them. It's more of like an ideal. So it could be the same for the non-Jews. Like, not everyone's going to reach a level, but like, it's an ideal. So it's like, they don't have to... He, he will say it's good for you to yeah. do the Jewish thing. He won't say it's bad for you to do it. He'll say it's good for you to do it. He says you get reward. He'll, he'll always... It always, which is where next week we're really going to have to get into it, because the next stage is what we would call the uniqueness of the Jewish people. This is where it gets going. It's going to get more heated in a contemporary sense because we don't like eugenics do we um differentiating people based off their genes we don't like that especially as jews we don't like that and he seems to be using that sort of language and so we're gonna have to break that down yes it's a weird question but like does it ever come up in a conversation about why would someone like believe Judaism enough to follow my god not enough to like convert like why would someone believe in Judaism enough to? It's a good question. It's a good question. Sorry. No, I actually meaning it's 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 it definitely is hard, but um, it's I don't know. I I can actually uh, he describes it. Sorry. I could not hear what. Oh, sorry, 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 sorry. I was actually told by someone from part like. SoundCloud that I don't beat the questions. So thank you. The question was, how would you get to a person who would agree to follow the Torah, but not want to convert? Meaning find the story compelling enough, the argument convincing enough 
to follow the Torah, but not become Jewish. Now, there are certain things in, that they wouldn't be allowed to keep, but there's plenty they could. And you, you, you perhaps get this with what they're called Noahite Jews, where they immerse themselves in the seven Noahite laws religiously. Eventually, apparently, their kids convert, or they convert eventually, but it, it's a good question. It's a really good question. Um, I think there is a, a nature of the, the nature of obligation, which you don't want to put yourself into. Um, for example, are there times in my life that if I could have opted out, would I? It's a good question. Would I opt out of being Jewish without any consequences? Maybe. Obligation is scary. Responsibility is scary. To dive into that, and especially if you believe in the metaphysics, it's like, it's a big deal. You're irre 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 irreversibly changing your relationship to the world. It's a big deal, even if you think it's true. And Rabbi Hudal is telling you, you don't have to. We all know we don't have to. And this way of paralleling out, but panning out the, the, the story between a Christian, the Muslim, and now articulating the worldview of the Jew, this, in the, in the language of Rabbi Jonathan Sachs, Judaism has a very unique place. You can be you, I can be me, and I don't need you to be me. That's a really powerful statement as a, as a, from a, on a religious standpoint. He wrote it in his book, not in, not obviously lots of places, not in God's name, which is his response to religious violence post 9-11. And his point was, you've got to learn this from Judaism. You've got to be okay with us not being you. And it's not very difficult. It's, very, it's going to be very difficult for more universalistic religions because universalistic religions need everybody to be them. And on the one side, universalism sounds really lovely and pleasant and everybody's going to be lovely and happy together. But there's a dark side to that as well, which is if you're not me, you'll burn. Judaism can say, listen, we're me and you can be you. In the opening of the Khazari, he leaves space for a Muslim and a Christian to read his book and say, ah, you're okay with me being me. Not that he's giving truth to Islam and the Prophet Muhammad. He's not doing that. He's saying, I can be a Muslim, open up the Khazari, see your critique of Islam and say, Oh, okay, fine. You weren't born a Muslim, so obviously you don't get it. You weren't born a Christian, so you don't get it. They, there's no antagonism there. I don't need to disprove you to be okay, which is the role of every one of these debates. A person doesn't have to, I don't have to debate you. I can be me and you can be you, and I'm okay with that. Maybe I don't know why I'm talking about, but isn't universalism just, like, wouldn't it be the same as being compelling? So if something is compelling, then it needs to be universal. So then how does that work that Judaism is missing the... Universalism, but having the compelling. Uh, yeah, exactly. That's the, that's, that's the point. That's the point. So just to repeat the question, is Judaism, if, if there's universalism, the point of universalism is that it calls everybody. How can Judaism have a calling everybody but not have a universalism? What Halevi would say is, its argument is a universal argument. But the only reason to take it not seriously, but feel it compels you, is the narrative, is the story, is the relationship, and that is particular. Reason has to be universal, or it's not reason. Reason is universal. It's an argument. And maybe, not next week, or maybe next week, we'll, we'll actually break down some of the arguments of why people and the different thinkers have articulated the Kuzari uh, argument in different ways. It was brought up earlier, but different thinkers have uh, um, stressed it and uh, focus on different aspects of the argument to try and make it more compelling. But it's an argument, and arguments can be criti criticized. 
meaning the classic criticism that put, people put towards this nationalistic experience is that, yeah, it didn't start as a nationalistic experience. It started off with like two people and then it sort of grew and then it grew and then it got embellished. And over time you've got 600,000 Jews saw God. That's not how it began. That's how myths develop. It's a good critique. Meaning the focal point of Rabbi Huda Levi's argument is that we have a tradition. The fact that we have this tradition in the here and now shows that an event in the past must have taken place. So this tradition doesn't make sense to exist today. The critic says, yes, it does. It's called myth formation. Myths form. Myths get developed. There's an argument against that there's no parallel myths compared to. But you're having a discussion with yeah. me. Absolutely. There's no parallel time in history where this happened. If it's the type of thing that happens, I would expect it to happen other times. Another critique against it is, it's working with an intuition. The intuition is, if I tell you God spoke to me, you would say, okay, <laughs> sure, God spoke to you, or you're crazy. I either believe you or I don't believe you. That's the, but if I choose to believe you, then I'm jumping in on it. There's no way of me verifying it. I can't speak to God because that was what you were doing. I can't speak to your mum because she wasn't there. I either trust you because you told me, and if I'm a, a charismatic figure, you'll jump in line with me, or you won't. But let's say you do. You can start developing followers. If I tell you, me and God appeared to me and Rivka, you can go ask Rivka. If I say God appeared to me and your mum, you can ask your mum. <laughs> That's the difference with the Jewish claim. The claim was God spoke to all of us, and that was passed down. Not only was it passed down, it was encouraged to be passed down. It was focused on being passed down. The uniqueness of the experience was passed down. And thereby, you have a claim to be unbroken tradition. There are times in history where people say the Torah was forgotten, and then it was remembered, but these are critiques on the argument, and people respond to these critiques. The, the critique against that whole process is... Yes, when you talk to me now in the 21st century and say to me, God spoke to me and your mum, and I wouldn't believe you because I could speak to your mum. Or even worse, I say God spoke to me and you. You'd be like, I just won't believe you unless it happened. That's working with an intuition. The intuition is people don't believe those sort of things. People don't believe when you tell them what they experienced. The tradition that we have, a live tradition today, that we can trace back 80 generations or so to the event, seems to be that everybody was convinced at some point, everyone experienced God. How do you start that? You don't say to everybody, God, you saw God, because they'll say, no, I didn't. That's, the, that's what motivates this as being a, an interesting argument. The critic comes along and says, okay, I hear you today, Mr. Post-University, post-enlightenment thinker, individualist, semi-learner. But wait a minute, we're not talking about individual semi-learner. We're talking about pagan, half-starved, Egyptian ex-slave. I'm not exactly sure what they wouldn't believe. <laughs> Stop projecting your sophisticated mm -hmm. thinking back there. It's good, a good critique against it. Now, sorry? We're going to get into the positive arguments next week. But yeah, that's a good critique. Another critique would be, actually, I don't think so, because we're not talking about a bunch of crazy Israelite slaves. 
at least the way the tradition has always described these people, is a super critical, stubborn bunch of complaining people. Uh-huh. It's not like the type of people that on the, every time, to- they were told by Moses to do X, and they were like, amen, Moses. No, <laughs> they, they constantly attack him. They constantly want to go back to Egypt. I mean, these were a critical group of people. Now you see, by the way, that when we talk about the Jews and we were slightly critical of them, and people want to sort of brush over it and say, no, they weren't. It was only two of them. There's a cost there. The power of the argument comes along with these people being salient thinking individuals. So that's an argument back out of them. But remember, when we do this to and fro, we're doing what they call dialectic. So you know what the word dialectic means? It's a really funny word to know the word because it's, we have the same word from the word diarrhea. It means that when we argue and discuss something, we go through a thing. I'm pretty sure this is the case. If I'm not, I'm going to be really embarrassed on the when someone listens to it. But when you go through a concept, it goes to and fro. It's called the dialectic, and it's how you come to truth. Yeah. Anyway, fun, fun times. Yes. Sorry. The concept of we're described as seven people like that also that also comes from the Torah, which we're arguing for. Oh. But then also look, I guess, if you look at Jews today, there are huge contributors to society. So, 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 so the, the circular nature of the argument is also a good point, in which case, good, good ways, the best ways of articulating this argument bypass all these points. They bypass all these points and take them in a completely different direction. Mm-hmm. They bypass, bypass these points and say, this whole intuition thing, it's not the argument. This is an intuition that motivates an argument because it's super unique. The real argument is something very different. That's where people like Dr. Sam Liebens in Haidt University, Dr. Rabbi, not Dr. Rabbi, well, they're both rabbis, Gottlieb, who teaches in Orthomer right now, developed another formulation of this argument. Both of those formulations we'll talk about in a superficial sense next week. Why do I want to deal with that now? Is purely because he says over here, an uninterrupted tradition, which is equal to the former. Are we going to work away thinking it's equal to experiencing it? No. But will we be impressed by the argument? And the reason why I want to put it over here, even though he develops it later on, I think having that been dealt with now is important. So when we come across it and he's talking about it, we're going to feel the, the, the weight of the movement of the argument. And that's what we will do next week. Mm-hmm. Yes, yeah, sorry. Um, d- dialectic, which is to... It's Dr. Sam Liebens. He actually he actually just came up with a book from Mumzer. I think it's from Zerka Press or uh, he's written a couple of books, but one of the ones he called the The, Jew, the, the, the guide to the Jewish undecided or something. I'm not sure. It's a very good. It's, it's, uh, I don't know. We have to check it out. Sam, Dr. Sam Lee Benz in uh, in um, in Haifa University. He's he's he's, he's English. So oh, so they describe like an uh, uh, argument that surpasses all this. Or yes. It's it's using the same principles, but it's it's articulating the argument in a different way. Now there's a book called Breaking the Chain of the Kazari. I have never read it. What is this book trying to do? Trying to show, I'm not sure if he's, I, I, he's I, I'm not sure what the motivation of the book is, but I didn't read the book. So I'm just putting that out there. But the point of the book is to try and break the train of the, the, the power of this argument. Oh, he wants to just yes. 
The reason why I found that a little bit silly is that if you hold what this argument is trying to do, if you're thinking it's giving you certainty, like granted to the person who wrote the book, Rabbi Yudha Levi seems to be expressing it is, if you think it's giving you certainty in the way we understand certainty today, yeah, that's a stupid argument. Mm -hmm. If you find it really interesting, really compelling, not really compelling, sorry, really interesting, you can find it compelling if you combine it with the narrative side, not in isolation that events happened, but events happened in a way that's actually meaningful to you. In the most profound sense of the word, word, this is a calling on your life. Maybe the weight of the argument of the evidence you need perhaps gets lowered. That's the claim, which I'll develop in combination with another philosopher called William James. But the point there is to try and show that there are certain types of events in our lives which he describes this particular philosopher. And there's problems with this. I know there, are, there are problems with this way of thinking and et cetera, et cetera, but I still think it's very powerful. There are certain events and decisions we have to make in our lives, which are forced. You can't choose to abstain. Decide you're not gonna pick. Agnosticism isn't an option because by not picking, you're picking. They're monumentous. They affect our life in the broader sense of the word. Perhaps those sort of decisions, the type of evidence is not less, but different. And perhaps we will jump into that next week. Thank you all so much for listening. Thank you so much. Thank you. Uh, by the way, yeah. I, I, and and the, the, the point of it being, just to end with this point, the point of it that the argument doesn't have to be a universal argument that calls everybody in the world. It doesn't have to be that strong. It has to be strong enough to call me, who's a Jew. That person said that's confirmation bias because you want it to believe it's true. And I say, true, true. But baked into Judaism as a system is, that's kind of the point. And to add one last point to the beauty of this argument, it really does appeal on so many levels of, of, of people's minds, from people who are quite simple to people who are very sophisticated. Both the people who we're gonna to discuss tomorrow are both professors in universities to teach philosophy or used to teach philosophy in universities. That's at the top end of the spectrum. At the bottom end of the spectrum, someone being told this argument that we're the only people who have this claim, which means a claim for the authenticity of our worldview, we're the only ones who have this type of claim. No one else has this type of claim. People find that on a most base level inspiring. So the fact that the argument can appeal on multiple levels of sophistication, I think is also really cool. It doesn't have to appeal to anybody except Jews. It's not supposed to. And it can appeal to every level. I think there's a really an extra reason of its interestingness.